grade and you would like to go to our kids' church, now is the time for you to do that. Um, we're glad that we have some volunteers that just said, hey, we need to do something for our kids. Let's go ahead and just do it this week. So here we go. Thank you, everyone, for, for that. Uh, take your Bible and turn to Psalm 118. Psalm 118 this morning. And as you're turning there, you could make a case that Psalm 118 is one of the most sung songs in human history. All right? I, I, I don't know if you realize this or not, but this is an upbeat, it's a joyous, exciting song. It has a lot of a repetition. And even today, 3,000 years later, since this has been written, you can still see all the different parts that come in where the different voices would sing the different verses. And this is a song that was sung by the Israelites uh, as, a, as a processional, festive, occasional song. They sung this all throughout their history, all the way through the New Testament. And so what makes this very interesting is that traditionally, um, this was sung at the very beginning and at the very end of the Passover celebration. And really, all throughout the whole Passover week, the Jews would sing this song. So we have the prophet Jeremiah who quotes this song. Ezra quotes this psalm, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and Peter, they all quote Psalm 118 in the New Testament. And this psalm even had a nickname amongst the Jews. They called it the psalm. All right, so that tells you really all you need to know, right, about how impactful, how important this song was. And I don't want to get too deep into the woods right now at the start of this introduction, but you can make a really good case, and a lot of people do, that this was the last song Jesus sung. Because in the New Testament, we see that Jesus finished up the Last Supper with his disciples. They sung a hymn. They went up into the Mount of Olives. And traditionally, Psalm 118 would have been what the Jews would have sung at the end of their Passover meals. So even if it wasn't the exact song, we don't know for sure. The Bible didn't tell us for sure. We do know that this song was on repeat. That They would have been singing it all week long. It would have basically been the soundtrack of the week leading up to Jesus' death and resurrection. So as we prepare to read this psalm, we're going to read it in its entirety. And I just want to say one other thing about this. One day, most likely, in the new heaven and the new earth, we are going to be singing this song with Jesus. We know Jesus sang this song, and we're going to be able to hear his singing voice. I don't know if you ever think about that. What, what Jesus' singing voice sounds like, but I think it's pretty amazing to hear that. I mean, it'll be incredible when we hear the musical parts with this. But for now, let's go ahead and read this together. Psalm 118. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Let Israel say, his steadfast love endures forever. Let the house of Aaron say, his steadfast love endures forever. Let those who fear the Lord say, his steadfast love endures forever. Out of my distress, I called on the Lord. The Lord answered me and, I, and set me free. The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? The Lord is on my side as my helper. I shall look in triumph on those who hate me. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. All nations surrounded me. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. They surrounded me, surrounded me on every side. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. They surrounded me like bees. They went out like a fire among thorns. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. I was pushed hard so that I was falling, but the Lord helped me. The Lord is my strength and my song. 
He has become my salvation. Glad songs of salvation are in the tents of the righteous. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. The right hand of the Lord exalts. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. I shall not die, but I shall live and recount the deeds of the Lord. The Lord has discipled me. The Lord has disciplined me severely, but he has not given me over to death. Open to me the gates of the righteous of righteousness that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. I thank you that you have answered me and have become my salvation. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we give. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. The Lord is God, and he has made his light to shine upon us. Bind the festal sacrifice with cords up to the horns of the altar. You are my God, and I will give thanks to you. You are my God, and I will extol you. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Whew. Isn't that powerful? What a praise-worthy song this is. And uh, I just have to say, um, all of us in the room who are looking forward to singing this song with Jesus one day, can you give a shout an amen after we just read that song? That's right. Uh, this psalm, like many psalms, you've heard this over and over again in this series, this summer song series. This was not an easy psalm to like outline and to really kind of formulate where this message was going because there's so much here. There's so many nuances. It's not like an epistle. It's not a narrative. I spent the better part of the day trying to outline it. But it's on the flip side, it's, it's not very hard to catch the theme, right? I mean, you, you can't miss the theme here. It says it in the very beginning, and it says it at the very end. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. And you can feel the vibe right away, verses 2 through 4. He's calling out all the different parties for a celebratory praise. Let, let Israel say, the steadfast love of the Lord endures forever. Let the house of Aaron say his steadfast love endures forever. Let all who fear the Lord say, say it with me, steadfast love endures forever. And some translations there will say his mercy endures forever. This is the Hebrew word hased, And it means steadfast love and mercy. It's a beautiful concept. And right now, if you're thinking, all right, great, here's a sermon about God's love. I've heard this before. Uh, what does this really mean to me? Well, how does this even matter to me? If this truth has never taken hold of you and stirred you up inside, uh, I have to say there is a big reason why this matters. The reason why this matters is the steadfast love and mercy of God is the most powerful force in the universe. There is nothing that comes close to being as life-changing, as eternity-altering as the steadfast love of the Lord that endures forever. And if you know, you know. If you've experienced this, you understand what this means, how powerful this is, how it will stir up everything that you need to live in this world. Big problems become small when you understand this truth. It's so much better than any pleasure, any passion that you could muster up on your own. 
The steadfast love of the Lord changes everything. And if you taste it, you shouldn't be able to shut up about it. This is the truth that makes you grow in your love for Jesus. Because the Bible says that if we love him, we will keep his commandments. It also says that we love him because he first loved us. So when we get to know his love for us, that's how we start growing into having a deeper, stronger love for our God. And if Christians aren't excited about this, there's another phrase for this in the New Testament. It's called leaving your first love. We can never lose focus, and, and we have to embrace this truth to grow in our love for Jesus. So if this is new for you, welcome. I am so glad you're here. Uh, this is what we talk about every Sunday. We talk about the love of God. We look at how he changes us. But when we use this word mercy, all right, the, some of your translations, I'm sure, say his mercy endures forever. It's, it's his said, the steadfast love. But when we use the word mercy, I don't want you to get it confused with grace. If you are part of our church and you've been with our church family for a while, you've heard me talk about this quite, quite often. And I know we're nearing the end of the summer, but I want to give you a pop quiz, all right? So I'm not going to just tell you the answer. I need all of you to help us all out and say it together, all right? What is the difference between mercy and grace? God, something from you that you deserve, that's mercy. Grace is God give, give, gives you something that you don't deserve, all right? Did anybody say that? Did anybody have that before, before I accidentally slipped up? There it is, right there. Mercy. Mercy is God withholding something from you that you actually deserve, like judgment for your sin. Grace is God giving you something that you didn't earn. You have no business getting that, but he's going to give it to you anyway. Our God loves us so much that he will always, for the rest of time, remain steadfast, immovable on this point. He will lovingly spare you from judgment, the judgment that you deserve, and he will give you grace. This is only true if you know him if he is your God. But if you make him your God, this is what you get. And when that sets in, that's where the beauty of praise comes in. Praise is a powerful thing. Praise is a weapon that fights back fret. We talked about that last week. Praise changes the way you think. It changes the way you feel. And it shows on your face when you understand what God has done for you. So within this main theme of giving thanks to the Lord for he is good, for his mercy endures forever, there are three specific truths that we can give thanks to God for in this passage. The first one is going to be our first point today. The Lord is God. Don't fear man. So look again with me at verses 5 through 13. Out of my distress, I called on the Lord. The Lord answered me and set me free. The Lord is on my side. I will not fear what man can do to me. The Lord is on my side as my helper. I shall look to him in triumph over those who hate me. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. You can see in verse 5, this is the anguish of someone who was spiritually enslaved to something. And... There still is slavery in the world today. We, as a church, we have freed slaves in Pakistan. We give to a child freedom coalition in India. And this is an organization that goes in and, and frees child 
slaves that are in rock quarries and, and puts them in a school, gives them education, gives them a career. It's an amazing thing. Uh, there's still human trafficking in our country right now. And this is a little bit under the radar. You don't really hear these headlines right now. Other things are dominating the headlines. But right now, there's a lot of action and fighting going on where pedophiles are being exposed. There's a lot of like that human trafficking being exposed right now, which is great news. But here's the point right now that we're talking about. Without Jesus Christ, every single person is enslaved to something. This is what we see in the Bible. Everyone who doesn't know Jesus Christ is enslaved to their own sin. We cannot forget that. Most lost people think that if they come to Jesus, they're going to lose their freedom. And, you know, they don't even realize that as they are living for themselves without the God of the universe over them, they are actually living in rebellion to their creator. And they are in slavery to their own sinful passions. Romans 6.16 says this, You are slaves to the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. Galatians 5.1 says that for freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand therefore, Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Living for the sinful passions of your flesh is slavery. And freedom only comes by grace through faith when we are given the gift of salvation, salvation from the punishment of our sins, something that we didn't deserve, but Jesus took our place as a sacrifice, as a substitutional sacrifice for us. This is 1 Peter 2.24. It says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and the overseer of your souls. So because of that truth, freedom from the slavery of sin, this is the reason why we can praise God. This is the ultimate reason why. Look at verse 6 with me again. The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? It is better to take refuge in the Lord than it is to take refuge in man. And I'm telling you what, this is something to sing and shout and take glory in, to praise him for. We don't have to fear man. And you can feel this freedom and this joy and this boldness that comes from not fearing man in the following verses. They surrounded me, but you cut them off. They surrounded me like bees, but you cut them off. I was pushed hard so that I was falling, but the Lord helped me. So this is better than having a rich uncle. This is better than having your own corporation that you put your trust in. This is better than having a genie in the bottle that comes out and grants you three wishes. This is so much better than having an ancient Asgardian who wields a hammer and speaks in old English looking out for you. I know we're getting way out there, but people put their trust in crazy things all the time. They do. And most people put their trust in men and women who can't always be there and people who miss things. But that's who a lot of people put their trust in. You have a God who created you, who knows you by name, and who will be with you forever and ever and ever. He laughs at anyone who holds you in derision. Anyone who wants to harm you, he has your back. Remember Psalm 2? We talked about that like a month ago. 
The Lord is God. He is the ultimate sovereign. He holds you in the palm of his hand, and no one is able to pluck you out of his hand if he has you. So what can man do to you? The answer is nothing that God isn't already in control of, that God won't allow, that God won't use. We have to remember that. Now, I'm sure some of us are sitting here thinking, well, that's easy for you to say. I've had people oppress me. They've slandered me. They've tried to destroy me with their hatred. The point here isn't what harm other humans can do that, are, that, are, that they are capable of inflicting upon you. They can do wicked things to you. The point is, even though they can do very evil things, in the end, they can't really harm you because our lives are God's and all things work together for good to those who are called by him, to those who know him. We're called according to his purpose, as Romans 8 says. It is so much better to put your confidence in God than it is to put your confidence in a person. It's wiser because God can be trusted. Man cannot really be, ultimately. Humans can easily be corrupted. They become selfish. God is good and he doesn't change. It's also safer. Uh, it's dangerous to put all your trust in those who can't help themselves from at some point letting you down. God will never let you down. It is more fulfilling. We grow in faith and we become more like Jesus when we trust God. Not when we rely on other people. And trusting God brings him glory. It's what we were created to do. It just brings all around better results for everyone. So give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. Say it with me. His steadfast love endures forever. Now, secondly, as we continue on in this passage, look how verse 14 makes this personal. I'm going to read verses 14 through 18 here. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. Glad songs of salvation are in the tents of the righteous. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. The right hand of the Lord exalts. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. I shall not die, but I shall live and recount the deeds of the Lord. The Lord has disciplined me severely, but he has not given me over to death. There's a carryover here from the last point about trusting in God over man. We are going to go through hard times. But if you have a personal relationship with your God, you're not going to die in those hard times. Spiritually, you will live. So take the discipline. The correction of the Lord happens because he loves us. It's how we grow. Recount his deeds. Always remember what he has done for you. This is the second point. The Lord is my God. Don't fear pain. And I can't help but read verse 17 and think about what Jesus said to Martha. Remember, we were, we were in this passage back in March. But right, right after the death of Lazarus, Jesus says in John eleven twenty five, 25, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who believes in me shall never die. This is a concept that has helped countless Christians throughout the ages and if you can bear with me, I want to just for a second geek out with a little church history, okay? So put your church history hat on, and let's, let's look at this specific verse, Psalm 118, verse 17, what it is meant for Christians. Martin Luther, one of the leading voices of the Reformation, 
he wrote Psalm 118, verse 17 on his study wall. So he could look at it every single morning. And he wrote about this verse. The psalmist here so immerses himself in life that death is swallowed up by life and disappears completely because he clings with a firm faith to the right hand of God. Psalm 118, verse 17 also meant a great deal to the poet and the hymn writer in church history, William Cowper, who was a personal friend of John Newton. They were contemporaries. I mean, we all know John Newton, the, slave, the former slave ship captain who came to Christ, who wrote the hymn Amazing Grace. Cowper was a friend with him, and we don't know as much about, most people don't know as much about Cowper as they do John Newton, but Cowper wrote more timeless songs even than Newton. And he had a very, very difficult time. He was a fragile soul. He struggled with mental health. He was abused. When he went to college, he was taunted at a student, as a student. And later in his life, he was actually put in an asylum for the mentally ill in St. Albans, England. And if you read his biography, he shares how he got through that season of his life. And he held on to this psalm as a personal testimony to his own mental and spiritual freedom. After he got through that season of his life, uh, he wrote the song, There Is a Fountain. And you may have heard of this song. It's one of my favorite old hymns. But it goes like this. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. Listen to that image, right? And sinners plunge beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. The dying thief rejoiced to see the fountain in his day, and there have I, though vile as he, washed all my sins away. Dear dying lamb, thy precious blood shall never lose its power till all the ransomed church of God are safe to sin no more. Ere since by faith I saw the stream thy flowing wounds supply, redeeming love has been my theme and shall be till I die. When this poor lispering, stammering tongue lies silent in the grave, then in a nobler, sweeter song, I'll sing thy power to save. There's a guy who got past his mental trauma, his depression that he was living in, by looking at this truth that I shall not die, but I shall one day live and recount the deeds of the Lord. Do you see how you have nothing to fear? Even in the midst of trial and tribulation, man cannot hurt you. Man cannot hurt you to the point of death because God loves you and he holds you. He will never give you over to death. Your physical body will return to dust one day. But if you know Jesus, that corpse that lies silent in the grave is not the end because your soul will leave, live on singing of his power to save. You can live without fear of death because you have a personal God who knows you by name and has before time has become. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. It's easy to worship when you realize that you've been rescued. It's easy to praise him when you know that he loves you. So if you know, you know, and I want all of you to know this. Now, here's, here's the last theme. It's a natural overflow of what happened to Martin Luther, William Cowper, and every single Christian who has ever grasped these truths. Point number three, the Lord is good. Rejoice and be glad in it. Verses 19 through 26. Open to me the gates of righteousness that I may enter 
through them and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. I thank you that you have answered me and have become my salvation. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. So what does it mean when it says, open the gates of the righteousness? Open to me the gates of righteousness. This is where originally when this was written, this is a processional psalm. And in this time, you know, the king would ride out into battle and he was facing the enemy. And if the king didn't come back from battle, that was really bad news for you, right? Basically, it would be the end of the world as you know it. It's like we can't even cook and eat our own food and who knows what will happen to our family. But when the king does come back, it's like, yes, we can live. Yes, we're saved. We're, we're, we're still free. So that's the immediate context. It's a processional celebratory psalm. But notice in verse 22, it takes this hard turn. The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And you may be thinking, all right, what's that all about? Uh, where did this architectural twist just come in? This is using imagery, and it's a very poetic way to make a point. What looks like it was humiliated is now honored. What was cast off, overlooked, despised, and rejected has now risen to the top. So are you picking up anything here? Is anybody sniffing anything? Uh, ringing any bells? Because in this Summer Song series, we've been noticing every single one of these psalms are messianic. So in the immediate context, verse 22 refers specifically to Israel, right? So the nation of Israel at this time was overlooked by the empire builders of her day as something insignificant. But even though Israel was rejected by the powers that be on earth, God chose them. He decided to work through them, called them out of slavery, made them his people through whom he would bring the savior of the world. But the New Testament quotes this verse often, and it takes this one level deeper. And I love the progressive revelation that comes in the New Testament. It adds another layer to the imagery of this piece of poetry. And the irony of ironies, by the time Jesus comes onto the scene, he is also the chief cornerstone that the religious leaders of Israel rejected. And listen to what Jesus says in Luke 20, verse 17. But he looked directly at them and said, what then is it that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And Peter quotes Jesus quoting Psalm 118 when he stands before the Sanhedrin in Acts 4. After Jesus rose again and ascended back to heaven, and Peter said the exact same thing to the religious leaders. And that did not make them happy because the religious leaders of Israel knew that originally back in Psalm 118, this was all about the, the nations that rejected Israel. And now they are saying, look, you're the religious leaders and you have rejected the chief cornerstone. In the original context, it was the surrounding nations. In the New Testament, it was the spiritual leaders of Israel themselves. So here is Jesus. He's right here in Psalm 118. Don't repeat the same mistake that many others have made by rejecting the stone, the rock, Jesus Christ, who is the cornerstone on which our entire faith is built. All of our hope, all of our life is built on Jesus Christ. And verse 25 says, Save us, we pray, O Lord, 
Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And this, there's another amazing thing about this verse. This is actually where we get our word Hosanna. And I, as I said, Psalm 118 was sung all throughout the Passover week. It was the soundtrack of the week. And when Jesus entered into Jerusalem that final time, um, the people laid down palm branches, which was their symbol of national pride. And they shouted, Hosanna, Hosanna to the son of David. So this word Hosanna is actually a Greek word. And our, our English word Hosanna is a transliteration of the Greek word Hosanna. The Greek word Hosanna comes from the Hebrew Hoshiona. And I know if you're a little confused right now, be, don't be confused by transliter transliteration. It's just simply when you're transfer, translating a word into another language and you don't have another comparable word. So you just take the Greek letters and you put English letters in there and you create a new word for the English language. That's what happened in the Greek, how they got the word Hosanna. And that's why we still use that word today. But Hoshiona is literally save us, we pray. It's right here from Psalm 118.25. It's the root source of where we get Hosanna. And when Jesus rode into Jerusalem at the start of the Passover, the people knew he was the king. And they were crying out, save us, we pray. They were laying down the palm branches. But they thought that Jesus was going to save them from the Roman occupation that they were experiencing. And you can read this whole story in John 12. They didn't understand that it was actually he was coming for spiritual victory over death. Now, when they did that, the Pharisees knew exactly what they were saying, and they said, hey, you need to, you need to cut this off and cut this out. Stop, stop saying this. See, these Pharisees were rejecting the stone, Jesus Christ. And they said to Jesus, tell the crowd to knock it off. And you know what Jesus said to them then? He said, he's not going to do that. No, I'm not going to do that. If they stop, the rocks will cry out. And that's an incredibly arrogant thing to say if it isn't true, okay? But it is true because Jesus is God. He's taking the praise that is reserved for God alone because Jesus is God, and he is good. And if you know, you know, and you can't stop praising him, and you won't stop rejoicing and being glad in him, give thanks to the Lord for he is good. Say it with me. For his steadfast love endures forever. There are three more verses left in this chapter, and these verses line up in perfect harmony with what we've already seen. They're really a perfect summary of, of what we have, and I love how rich and deep the Bible is. When the Bible does stuff like this, I'm just like, yes, this is so cool. I, I just love this. But look at verse 27. You remember our, you remember our three themes that we already saw, but here, here it is again. The Lord is God, and he has made his light shine upon us. Bind the festal sacrifice with cords up to the horns of the altar. That's verse 27. That's a summary for the first theme. Jehovah is the one true God, and he has revealed to this to us by making his light shine upon us. And when you worship him, you have no fear of what man can do to you. Verse 28, you are my God. I will give thanks to you. You are my God. I will extol you. If you know, you know. He's not merely the God of Israel. He can be your God personally. You have to ask the question to yourself, have I put my faith and my trust in him personally? Is he really your God? 
Does a psalm like this get you pumped up and fired up? If he is, praise him. Because this is who he is, verse 29. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Worship team, you can come back up right now. Do you know this, God? Is this praise ringing true to the point where you want to shout it out and you want to praise him some more? There is a revolution going on in our country right now. It's not just for our nation. There's wickedness in high places that is coming after the church of Jesus Christ. We're singing a super powerful, upbeat song. This is all positive. This is rejoicing. This is great news. We step out of these doors, people don't feel this way, okay? It's a completely different story. There, there are forces in play that hate people who love Jesus. And they are doing their very best to slow us down and to stomp us out. It has never been more unpopular or harmful for your temporal career to worship the one true God. And we don't totally feel that here as much as we do. We see it in like Seattle and Portland and California. It's coming this way too. But if you know him, you know that none of that matters. When you know his steadfast love endures forever, you know that you're going to be fine. And more than fine, you're going to be able to live this life to the fullest without being enslaved to the sin and without being engulfed in bitterness and resentment like people who don't have the steadfast love of God. So if you know him, start praising him in your life every single day. Remember verse 4? Let all those who fear the Lord say his steadfast love endures forever. If you just start shouting this out, if you start praying this, if you start singing this, this will change the way you process all of the problems and the wickedness that, that hits you on a daily basis. You will be able to let it roll off your back. Use praise as a weapon against the darkness of this world, against your flesh, against the devil. Use praise as a weapon. I already pointed out how Peter quoted this psalm before the Sanhedrin Council, and that was a pretty bold thing to do, equating the spiritual leaders of Israel with the Gentiles who rejected Israel. You better believe they didn't like that. But how was Peter so fearless? It's because he saw the resurrected Jesus Christ. If you remember, Peter was not fearless before he saw the resurrected Christ. And he knew his Savior, and he knew his God. And when Peter quotes Jesus quoting Psalm 118, to his letter to the Christians who were in persecution, to the Christians who were in exile, this is what he says about it. 1 Peter 2, verses 4 through 5. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Christ Jesus. And he goes on to say in verse 9, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, 
but now you have received mercy. That's who you are. And if you know, you know. This is our new identity in Jesus Christ. So let's all stand up. And in closing today, let's lift some praise to the one whose steadfast love endures forever.